Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim brings us a message where we begin looking at the story of Noah and how it connects back to the original creation story. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. Bible. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to look at the story of Noah. Uh, I call this one Noah part 1. There's a part 2 next week. Um, If you are, uh, if you have one of our devotionals, um, I believe we are in week 7. So today you'll start week 7. So if you're, I understand like you lose a week here and then it's okay, where are we now? Um, We'll be in week 7. If you don't have a devotional, come talk to me. we're, We're trying to figure out now whether we place another order or not. Um, and so uh, if you haven't gotten one of our Genesis devotionals, we would love for you to, to we would love to get this in your hands. And, um, and we have to order more to do that, but uh, we would love to know. So let us know. Um, have they been, has it been helpful? Those of you who've been able to do it? Okay. Um, your feedback, uh, both the like, hey, it's been helpful, but also like the constructive feedback will be really helpful as we think about where we go uh, in our next series in 2024 um, and try to figure out like how do we uh, resource the church so that we can continue. Our hope is that we study the scriptures on Sunday morning. We do that deeply here, but actually to, to continue that conversation throughout the week uh, with your people, whether that's um, whether that's you kind of as a personal devotion or you and, a, you and your spouse or you and a friend, um, but, uh, or you, uh, I, I've, I know a number of you are doing this as families. And, uh, and so we'd love to know, is this, a, is this a helpful resource? We try to make the questions age appropriate, but also um, deep enough that, uh, that little kids could do it and uh, older people could do it. And so if we miss the mark on that, please let us know that all of that feedback will be helpful. But uh, if you're playing along at home, we're going to be week seven this week. Uh, the, the beginning of the Noah story. Uh, quick recap. Uh, over the last couple of months, we've been, so beginning of the year, we started our Genesis study, and we've been working through the first couple chapters. Honestly, the goal of these first couple chapters as, as we study this here is to develop uh, some, some common shared language. Uh, just, we're just trying to lay a foundation for once we get into the Abraham story. The story itself is like, okay, that, that's going to take us on a journey. Um, but we're trying to build some vocabulary and some, some tools. Um, uh, I want you to see some things. Um, but if you were going to stand back, if you missed the first six weeks, and you had to sum up the first six weeks of Genesis in like a sentence, how would you, how would you do that? Out of curiosity. I'll give you my sentence, but I'm curious. Anybody have like a, here's like the first six chapters. That's what I wrote. I mean, almost. That's almost it. it God is good. Man screws up. God is good. I, I wrote sin is spreading. Like what you see is uh, God is good. God creates the world good. God creates the world. Um, God actually says it's very good at the end of the creation. Uh, and then God creates humanity. And, and people's job from the very beginning of the scriptures is to partner with God in stewarding the creation. We're supposed to take the creation somewhere. Um, we're supposed to be... Uh, the caretakers of it all. Um, but what you discover is uh, it starts off relatively small by, by our standards, at least. It's, it's a disobedience. They, Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Um, but then one generation in, and you've got the first murder. Uh, Cain kills his brother Abel, and we're one generation in. 
And then by the time you get to chapter 6, where we're picking up today, uh, chapter 6, we read this, uh, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Let me, let me say that again. It's a, that's a strong sentence. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil, and just in case you're wondering when, all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. It's, it's taken six chapters, and the whole project, this whole creation project, seems to have devolved into absolute chaos. And then we get to chapter six, and we are introduced to a gentleman by the name of Noah, um, which is where our story picks up. Noah. Actually, we're introduced to Noah in chapter five in the genealogy, and things begin promising with Noah. Uh, things seem initially to be like, okay, this, is, this could be good. Uh, Noah's name actually means to comfort. Uh, the first words spoken of him, over him by his parents are, uh, they named, his dad named him Noah, and he said he will comfort us in our labor and painful toil of the of, of our hands caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. So early on we read, okay, this Noah guy, maybe, maybe he's going to get it right. Maybe unlike Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, Noah's going to get it right. In fact, right after the stuff about every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time, uh, right after that we read uh, verse 8 of chapter 6, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So um, this is where I want to I wanna begin our discussion today. And I say begin because uh, this one really is going to need a part two. Um, we'll, we'll take two weeks on the Noah story. Uh, the what I hope you, what I want you to see is, um, I want to lay a foundation today that I'm, I hope by next week uh, we can start pulling together some threads that we leave maybe hanging today. By the way, this is just my subtle way of saying, please come back next week, um, because otherwise I might break your story, and I don't want to do that. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll have some questions. We're going to ask them, and then next week, hopefully, uh, we can tie a lot of those loose ends together. But um, very intentionally, we're not going to do all of that this week, okay? So we're going to lay a foundation and come either come back next week or find it online and listen that way. But I, I would hate for you to miss the second half of this, the second part of this. Um, but, uh, but essentially, um, this story has something that it wants to teach us about who God is and who humanity is. And uh, for those of you who have ever had a flood in your life, this story wants to speak something into that. For those of you who, ever, who have ever wondered if God is angry with you because of whatever has happened in your life, it feels as though God is maybe punishing you that God, maybe the language here is God regrets having, like if you've ever felt that way, uh, please come back next week. Uh, there's, a, there's a, it's there, if you read the story closely, there's a, there's a line of mercy and grace throughout the story that uh, if we're just jumping in and not paying close attention, we may miss. And uh, we'll spend some time unpacking that next week. But this week, let's begin with the questions. Um, I want to I start our conversation on Noah by asking some questions together that I don't believe in. Okay, So I want to I ask some questions that I personally don't like, um, but I want to ask them. I actually think uh, they're the questions that we tend to, that tend to come up with the Noah story. And even though I personally, I, I think the questions 
um, are a fundamental misreading. I think they're a wrong way to read the text, but um, it's one, there's some of those questions that will haunt us, and so we might as well ask the questions, and then we'll try to deal with a couple of them this week and a couple next week. Um, but, it's, but again, hear me clearly. I think these are the wrong questions, okay? So I think, they're, I think they're bad questions, but let's ask them anyway. Here's the questions. Uh, this story is, would you agree with me, is one of the most famous stories in, in our Bible? Agree with that? It's one of those stories that we uh, hang in our kids' nurseries. Uh, the, you know, all the animals going in the boat. Uh, this is one of the stories that um, we've got these kids' Bibles. And uh, the, the, the shortest of our kids' Bibles have 10 stories in it. And of all the stories, hundreds of stories in your Bible, of, if you had to pick the top 10 to put in a kids' Bible, uh, this author decided to pick the Noah story. And so uh, in our kids' Bible is the story of the time in which God Killed everybody. <laughs> but look at the puppies come in the boat. Uh, like, it, it is a, it's odd. Can we agree? The story itself is odd. It's, it's, it's a little dark. Uh, God, that line, God regretted making humans. Uh, that's how the story begins and it ends with every human minus Noah and his family um, underwater. It's one of those, uh, it, it's hard to imagine kind of stories. It's one of those try not to imagine kind of stories. It's one of those, as you read it to your kids, you hope your kids don't ask the follow-up questions kind of stories. Um, so, so what do we do with this particular story? And by the way, those, again, here's a bunch of questions I don't believe in, but I'm gonna ask them anyway. Those are just the tip of the iceberg kind of questions. Uh, those, those are the kind of questions that, okay, that, that maybe there is something that the text wants to say, um, but, but if you dive into the story, uh, it can raise all sorts of questions. I remember when I was a kid, probably like my son's age, so like nine, nine-ish. I remember asking my parents, having like studied this Noah story, I remember asking my parents, what happened to all the plants? Um, like, you know, like, okay, so we know the animals got on the boat, but what, how did the plants survive the flood? Uh, now, like, now, maybe some of the plants can survive underwater, but it has been my experience that most plants don't survive with too much water. Uh, anybody else kill plants by overwatering? Yeah, it's been my experience that most plants die in the water. So, so what happened to all the plants? How did the plants survive? Uh, or the classic question, what happened to the dinosaurs? If you go to the Ark Museum in Kentucky, I've not been there, but I've been told about this museum. If you go to the Ark Museum in Kentucky, some of you have been there, uh, they spend a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to answer the dinosaur question. What happened to the dinosaurs? Did the dinosaurs not fit on the boat? Uh, what happened to the dinosaurs? That, that's a, uh, apparently a question people are asking. Like, okay, let's go with it. What happened to the dinosaurs? And forget dinosaurs for a minute. What about all the other animals? How do all the animals fit into the, to the boat? You've asked that question to yourself, I'm sure, or kids have asked you that question. Like, how did all, the, all of the animals? Uh, now, it's a big boat. Uh, the Bible gives us the dimensions of the boat. Uh, the dimensions of the boat, actually, the dimensions are in direct proportion to the dimensions of the ark, of uh, the, the ark that will come up later in the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, but, but we're given the dimensions to the boat, and uh, the boat is essentially uh, one and a half football fields long, that's big, and about half the width of a football field. So it's a, it's a big boat. Um, and there are a lot of species of animals. Uh, according to our, some estimates right now, uh, scientists are guessing that there are about 8.7 million, million species on Earth. Um, of those species, one to two million of those species are animals. And uh, so one to two million animals, 
Um, but studies estimate that about 86% of all land animals have yet to be, to be discovered. And about 91% of all sea species have yet to be discovered. So, in other words, for every one animal we know of, there's another eight animals we haven't yet discovered. We don't know of those animals. My question is, how did all of them get in a boat? You've asked this question. I don't, I don't believe in this question, but you've asked this question. I, I've asked this question. How do they get into the boat? And how, so those are just the animals that go into the boat. But what we know about animals is that once animals uh, see other animals, animals make more animals. So, so those are just the ones that go in the boat. We, when I was a kid, um, my sister really wanted a guinea pig. And my parents said, okay, yeah, you can get a guinea pig, um, but just one, just one guinea pig. Well, it turned out that the guinea pig we got was a pregnant mother. And uh, so that one mama pig had baby pigs, and then baby pigs had baby pigs, and baby pigs had baby... By the way, they were siblings. My parents struggled to explain that to us. Um, <laughs> and by the way, you, what you find is if you keep uh, reproducing with your siblings, about six or seven pigs down the line, they're like these hairless little monsters, uh, like Steve Buscemi in <laughs> guinea pig form. Um, those are the animals that go in the boat, but how many animals come out of the boat? That's the, and uh, here's a question. You've thought about this question. How come the Bible doesn't say any, anything about the smell, right? It had to have smelled. It just takes one cat to smell up a whole house, right? <laughs> because cats, what's the word I'm looking for? Stink. Some of you, if I offend the cat lovers in the room, I'm, I'm sorry. Some of you are like, we have a cat and our house smells great. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm very glad cats made it on the boat. Uh, <laughs> they bathe themselves, Pastor Tim, with their tongue. Uh, Speaking of cats, um, okay, it had to have smelled, no mention of the smell, and uh, cats use a litter box, which you then put in like your laundry room. But cats uh, use a litter box. That's got to be a big litter box on the ark. Would we agree? This is a lot, there's a lot of like that. Uh, how is that Noah's reward for being righteous and blameless? Yes, you'll survive the flood, but you're going to be cleaning the litter box of every animal. And how do you clean the litter box of a lion? That, that's what you sign up for, Noah. Good, good luck. Good luck. Uh, so why no, why no mention of the smell? Why no mention of the litter box? Uh, and here's a question. Uh, how do you keep all the animals alive? You know, like you got two of each. Like one eats the other. Like, okay, now what do we do? Um, animals, so if, if at this point in the story, Cain has killed his brother Abel, apparently my hunch is that animals must have been killing each other. So how do you keep all the animals alive? And what about the animals so that's like carnivores. Carnivores need meat. But what about the animals that uh, need plants? What do, what do they eat? This story, if you start asking those kinds of questions, uh, it takes you sideways very quickly. And you start spinning. Your head starts spinning. Uh, now, a couple of those questions we'll try to tackle next week, especially the question around the character of God. Um, what kind of God would do this? I actually think that that's exactly the question the story wants us to address. What kind of God is this God? And what, what does this tell us about humanity? However... Uh, a lot of the other questions, I said I don't, I don't believe in the questions. I don't think they're good questions. Uh, I, think, I think some of them are the wrong questions. And so, um, actually, I, I think what we can do is there are questions that we bring to the Bible, right? We ask these questions because 
we live in this world and we have these observations. And so we bring the questions to the Bible. And then we go scouring the Bible for answers to the questions. And um, often, sometimes we find an answer that's satisfactory, but a lot of times you just don't. What happened to the dinosaurs? I don't see any mentions of dinosaurs. So then what happens is somebody who's really smart and really eloquent, well, they make up an answer. And uh, okay, good enough. It, it answers my logic question a little bit, I guess. I'll try not to think too deeply about it. Um, and we move on. But those questions are the questions we bring to the text. I think a far better set of questions to ask of your Bible are not the questions we bring to the text. Those, you feel free to like, give yourself permission to ask them. Try to chase the answers. But I think a far more important line of question to ask of the Bible is the questions that the text is trying to get us to ask. Uh, there are questions that if you read your text closely, it's trying to provoke crises in you. It's trying to provoke a set of questions in you. Uh, it's got some questions it actually wants us to, to find answers to. And, uh, and so we can chase some of the, the, these questions, and, and then ultimately you get in these debates about, did the story actually happen, or was it the story that was passed around? Well, again, we'll talk about a little bit of that next week. But, um, but, but you chase that too long, and you end up in that conversation. However, if you chase that, what's the story? What's this story want me to ask? What you discover is a profoundly compelling and profoundly uh, uh, personal set of questions that this text actually wants us. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human in a generation of sin? How do we, uh, in this world, how do we continue to honor God while also walking on, on, in this world? Those kinds of questions. Far better questions. Uh, one of the questions you often um, what you discover in the Bible is often what the Scripture's trying to do, and this is why we, we're going so slow during this first couple weeks, uh, often what they're doing is they're stacking stories on top of each other. And one of the things tr- the Bible is trying to get us to do is to understand that this story and this story are connected. They need each other. Uh, you don't fully understand this story without understanding this story, and you don't fully understand this story without understanding this story. But when you put them together, all of a sudden now you begin to see something that maybe if you pulled them apart, you'd miss. It's like an interpretive lens on top of this, the scriptures. Uh, so for instance, we looked at the Cain and Abel story, and we said, okay, there's a connection between the Cain and Abel story and the Adam and Eve story. But then we saw another connection, and then another connection, and at first you could brush them off as coincidence, but if you keep spotting all the connections, once you get to like number 17, you begin to realize, oh, these two stories are connected. If I'm going to understand Cain and Abel, I have to understand Adam and Eve. If I want to understand Adam and Eve, I have to understand the story of Cain and Abel. Um, you, it's like you cannot fully understand this story without understanding this story. Does, does this make some sense? I say this because Noah's connected to another story as well. Um, and, and by the way, when you begin to see this, you begin to notice that the Bible is offering a commentary. So if you, if you had somebody come up to you and say, I need a commentary on the Bible, something that is authoritative and old uh, and reliable. I've read C.S. Lewis. I read John Calvin. I, I read Brueggemann. I read all the, the big names, but I need a new commentary. What if I were to tell you we have a commentary on the Bible that is ancient and it's authoritative and, it's, and it is the Bible itself? That's, that's what our Bible wants to function like a commentary on top of itself. Another way to get at this, uh, have you ever wondered why, why do we have two ears and two eyes? Right? 
the, your ears, t- take your ears, it's, it's, so it's for depth perception, right? It's for the, where we use is stereo. Your ears are separated by a few inches and they're pointed in opposite directions. This ear hears the world slightly different than this ear hears the world. However, what your brain will do is it'll take these two signals and it will blend them together in a way that creates uh, what, what would be 2D. Jared understands this way better than I do. What would be 2D and it fills it in. We call the word stereo. Same is true with eyes. Matt and Alyssa Bohr would explain this way better than I could. Uh, your eyes, if I, just, if I do this and have you shut one eye, you're gonna see some things. And if you shut the other eye, you're gonna see other things. Um, but what your brain's going to do, the, they're just couple inches apart, it's going to take the two signals and merge them together to create something more full, a, a more beautiful picture of the world. That's what our Bible's trying to do. It's trying to give us two stories that act as interpretive lenses to how do we understand this complex problem of what does it mean to be human? The two stories, uh, this, this, this story is actually in... Uh, so the, the Noah story is actually connected to a number of stories, but there's one story in particular that we've already covered that the Noah story seems to be calling us back to that's trying to help us understand that story, not in just 2D, but in 3D. And that story is a story of creation, creation. By the way, this is, um, this is one of the reasons I find your Bible, our Bible, so brilliant. Uh, the, the greatest author, Shakespeare doesn't do this. Shakespeare's brilliant, but Shakespeare doesn't do this. C.S. Lewis is brilliant, but C.S. Lewis doesn't do this. Your Bible does this in a way that no other writing has ever done. So I, I wanna show you the story of Noah this morning because it's, it's great. I wanna set up for where we're going next week. But more than that, part of me just wants you to begin to see how brilliant this book really is because when you begin to see how brilliant the book is, maybe you understand, wow, the, the author of the book must be even more brilliant. And that's the goal, is to fall even deeper in awe and wonder of the God of the scriptures. So that's my goal. Um, the creation story and the Noah story seem to be interpretive lenses that need each other. Now, um, uh, how are these stories connected? What are the stories trying to get us to see? Let's start in the first story. I'm gonna work through the story with you. Uh, we've read it already in depth once, so for the sake of time, we are not gonna read the story together. Um, but let's, let's, let's test our memories, uh, let's test our biblical knowledge. Let's see how well you do in recovering the story together. Uh, we'll start it, I'll read you the first, uh, first how it begins, and then I will see if we can recover which day which things happen. So no cheating, no turning there. Okay, Genesis 1 begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. If you were gonna draw this, uh, we we played this game a few uh, months ago or so. If you're gonna draw this, you've got darkness. You've got waters. The waters are described as chaotic. Like this waters of chaos. And then you've got the spirit of God hovering over the waters. The word for hover there is mirochevitz. It's the word that a bird makes when it hovers. Uh, You've got the spirit of God hovering over these dark, chaotic waters. Some of you are like, I know where this is going. You see it, right? You you begin to see it. By the way, that word spirit is, uh, in Hebrew, it's the word ruach. You want to say it? Ruach. 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 Ruach can be translated spirit, it can be translated breath, and it can be translated wind. 
the spirit of God or the breath of God or the wind of God was hovering over chaotic waters. That's how the story opens. That's how your Bible opens. Then we get seven days of creation. Day one, God creates what? What haven't you seen in like four months? Ah, let there be light. Let there be light. And God separates it from the darkness day and night, day one. Day two, harder. Water above, and God separates it from the waters below. Day three. Land, land and water get separated. So you've got these three days, bing, bing, bing. And you see this language of separation. If you remember the chiasm that's in this, 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 uh, this poetry structure, uh, the first three days are about separation. The second three days are about filling. God's got to fill what he separated. So God created light and dark on day one. He's going to fill it on day four with the sun and the moon, and the stars. That's, that's day four. Uh, day five, uh, God has created on day two. He's separated the waters, so he's going to fill the water above with the birds. And uh, uh, the water below, he's going to fill with the fishies. Uh, then uh, day six, uh, God has separated land from the water, and God's going to fill the land with animals and people. And with people. Then uh, the very first thing God says to people, the very first commandment, the commandment that as a church we have taken very seriously, the very first thing God says to people is, but God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. (laughs) That's what we do well. Uh, Fill the earth and subdue it. The word subdue there is take care of it, steward it. Um, It's a language that God talks about, uh, uses for himself when he talks about how he cares for creation. So Fill the earth, but take care of it. Steward the creation. Again, this is all recap. Then day seven is what? Sabbath. God says, I'm going to give you a sign to remind you that it's not just about producing. You are not human machines. You're human beings. Your job is to rest, just like I've rested. Just stop. Rest. That's day seven. Uh, The very next story is God's going to create a Garden. We call it the Garden of Eden. That is Genesis 1 into Genesis 2. This is your first chapter of your Bible. I know I went through it really quickly, but that's the first chapter. Now let's ask this question as we read through the Noah story. Is the Noah story saying anything about creation? And is the creation story saying anything about the Noah story? Are they connected in some way? Now, uh, Genesis chapter 7, uh, we know how the story begins. We won't read through the whole story. Uh, here's the bullet points. Um, uh, all humanity is sinning all the time, every inclination of their heart, except for Noah and his family. So God says, I'm going to destroy them all, and it's going to happen for, via a flood. There's going to be a flood. Um, and so Noah built a boat. And so Noah builds a boat. Uh, then animals, two of every kind, uh, come onto the boat. A few extras for the sacrifices. Um, but they fill the boat. And then the rains come, and uh, everyone who's not on the boat, every animal, every creature, every person who's not on that boat is killed. And that's chapter 7. It's a very eh, kind of chapter of the Bible. Uh, Then we get to chapter 8. Now, um, let's see if we can spot the connections. Uh, Here, before we go there. um, Anybody seen, has, has anyone seen the new Top Gun movie? Show of hands. 
okay, you know how to do this. Whether you know you know how to do this, you know how to do this. Um, so Top Gun 2, Maverick, uh, it was, I don't get to the theater a lot since kids because it's, you got to pay the sitter and then you got to pay the ticket. And by the time you're out, it's like $300 to go to a movie. But, uh, <laughs> but I got to see Top Gun in the theaters uh, and it's an incredible experience in the theaters. There's just some movies that you got to see in the theaters. I went to Phoenix and so you get the, anybody been to Phoenix? They got like the heated seats that like, vibrate and recline all the, it's, it's fantastic. You got to go. Um, anyway, I went, I went there, I uh, saw Top Gun Maverick and Top Gun Maverick as a movie on its own holds. It's a great movie. If you've not seen the first Top Gun, totally a great movie. However, if you've seen the first Top Gun, what you discover is sprinkled throughout Top Gun Maverick are all of these little connections in movie, the movie industry, they call them Easter eggs. All these little things. The more obsessed you were with the first Top Gun, the more of the little Easter eggs you begin to see. All of these connection points, uh, they're in there for a reason. They're trying to tie the two stories together to tell one story, okay? I say that because I think this is what's happening in our text. There's tying two stories together. See if you can see the connections. Uh, this is beginning of chapter eight. So the flood has happened, and now it's time to uh, remake the world, Verse one, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. What does this sound like? By the way, the word wind is the word ruach. It could also be translated spirit or breath. We have chaotic waters and we got God sending over the chaotic waters a spirit or breath. What does this sound like? Genesis 1, okay, verse 2. Now the springs of the deep, water below, and the floodgates of the heavens, water above, had been closed, and the rain stopped falling from the sky. So we got, once again, the separation of water below and water above. And by the way, by the way when the rain stops, you now move from dark back into light. You have subtly this like, callback to the Genesis Story. Verse three, the water receded steadily from the earth at the end of the 150 days. The water had gone down and on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. What happens on day three of creation? separated from water. And now we have it again. The land is separated from the water. And by the way, what's all this business with on the 17th day of the seventh month and on the first day of the 10th month? Uh, how do we know what object in our world tells us what a day is? And what object in our world tells us what a month is? You have the subtle reference to, ah, quite clever, I think. Uh, sun, moon, and stars. Uh, verse six. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark, and he sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. A raven is a? Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water all, all over the place on the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hands and he took the dove and he brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. 
the ground is alive. The ground is producing vegetation. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove back out again. But this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 600th and first year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds and the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number in it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife, his wife and his son's wives, and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Animals come out of the ark according to their kind. What does this sound like? Day six. And Adam and Eve, or, and Noah and his wife and his kids come out of the ark, just like Adam. Creation. And then we read this, uh, Genesis chapter 9, the very next story. Then God blessed Noah. This is the first thing God says to Noah after it. God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. We overmaking our point. It's like a repeat. Then God says, oh no, they'll never rest. They're not gonna, he's not gonna rest. He's gonna be terrified that I'm gonna flood him again. He's not gonna stop. He's gonna be worried constantly. I gotta give him a sign. I gotta remind him that I will not flood him again. And so God gives the rainbow. It's a sign. Uh, verse 12, and God said, this is a sign of the covenant I am making between you and me and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between, the, between me and the earth. You can rest. And then uh, what does Noah do as soon as God says you can rest? Verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a, what's a vineyard? It's a garden. It's a garden. And by the way, just in case we're like, oh, I don't know. I don't see it. Uh, you, you have a, just a weird way of talking about Noah here. Noah, a man of the soil. Why that language? Why this language of a man of the soil or a man of the dirt? Did you know that in Hebrew, the way you say of the soil? You know how you say that? Repeat after me. Ah, dam. I'll say it, Adam. Literally, the text says, now Noah, Adam, proceeded to plant a, gar a garden, a vineyard. It's not subtle. God is, God, Noah is uh, Adam 2.0. This is creation restarting. God is starting again. Be fruitful and multiply. Take care of the earth. God is starting over. We have creation 2.0. We have Adam 2.0. The whole story seems to be on, it's like God pushed the reset button and now it's powering back up. How we're powering the world back up. Okay, you still with me? Is that cool? I think it's cool. I think it's cool. Um, okay, let's, let's ask some questions. Uh, those are the things that the story have the same. However, there's one key way and it's key uh, that these stories are different. This is a key difference that I have not seen until recently. Um, it was pointed out to me by a couple of, uh, of Jewish scholars. Um, one of them is named uh, Ari Lam, 
L-A-M-M, if you're interested, Ari Lam. And then the other is one of my favorite authors, Rabbi David Foreman, F-O-H-R-M-A-N. Uh, and they point out something I, I completely miss. This is, this is what I want to ponder with us in just the few minutes we have left. Uh, this, I, so this idea that, uh, that God is recreating the world after the flood. Let's just think about why it matters so much. Like, why, why does that matter? Is it just a cool story? Is that all? Like, why does this matter? And I, I, I actually think it changes a little bit our whole understanding of why God brought the flood in the first place. Like, why bring the flood? Now, if you stop your average person in the street. Hey, Noah's Ark, you know the story? Why do you think God, like, why, or why did God flood the earth? Why, why, why the flood? Most people are going to tell some version of the story of, like, you know, well, mankind was evil, and God was angry that mankind was evil, and so God decided to punish mankind because mankind was evil, and so that's how the flood came to be. That's the flood story. But, and this is what our Jewish friends have helped me see, the Torah seems to be suggesting maybe a more nuanced read of the story. It seems to be what the Torah is trying to point out, these first five books of the Bible, this story, that the flood, the goal of the flood wasn't really just to destroy people. It wasn't really the goal. In fact, if you read it closely, the story, it seems that the dominant goal was to destroy the world, the environment as a whole. Now, how does that make anything better? Um, but, but if the goal was just to destroy people, God wouldn't need a flood, right? God would just need to get, like, send some kind of a plague, take out all the people, and then start repopulating. But, but it seems as though the goal of this whole thing was that somehow the earth was sick. Somehow the land itself was, was sick, and God looks down and sees, and it's because of our violence, it's because of our corruption, but somehow the earth itself has been ruined. God had created this earth, created it in a certain way, and somehow the earth itself has been ruined. Now, I know it sounds a little bit crazy until you start reading through the story and you realize, wow, it's been hinting at this this whole time. For instance, in the Abel, Cain and Abel story, uh, after God, uh, Cain kills his brother Abel. Notice how God describes what has happened. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Somehow the soil itself has been corrupted. The, the image in this passage is it's like the earth opened up and drank the blood of Abel. I know it's a kind of disgusting metaphor, but, but it's, and then what we read is that as more people and, uh, spread violence and more people spread violence, the ground is absorbing more and more blood and the soil itself. Notice this language in Genesis 6. Just pay attention to how much the earth comes up here. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. It's earth, 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 over and over and over again. People fill the earth with violence, and somehow this evil, somehow it corrupts the earth. Uh, I love how David Foreman talks about this. He says, God had to get rid of the old world. It was ruined and create a new one. And while he was renovating, you know, painting the apartment, 
Well, there's no place for you humans to live. It's not so much that they were being punished as, they, as that they didn't all deserve to be saved. I'll put some of you guys in a boat and keep them alive until the renovation is complete. But until then, look, there's no place to live. I've got to fix the world. Can't have a ruined world. I posit it as a theory. Um, have you seen the Noah movie, by the way? I just rewatched the, have you seen the, I think 2014? I rewatched it in anticipation of this message. Um, it's featuring Russell, are you not entertained, Crow? Um, and Jennifer, I, I met her once while walking my puppy in Zealand while she was filming a movie, Connolly. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's actually, this is a point that the movie, I think, actually gets pretty accurate. The, the world itself it's, there's like this scene where he steps on the ground and the ground's like, like a sponge of, of blood. Like the earth itself seems to be destroyed. And so God sees this destroyed earth and God says, I have to recreate it. I have to recreate the earth. Now that raises a follow-up question. If after the flood, God is in fact recreating the world and uh, he's putting a new Adam in charge of this world because the old Adam messed it up and his descendants messed it up. And so we need a new Adam and the new Adam's given the same task as the first Adam in this new world. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is the world God creating the same as the first world or is it different than the first world? Now, we don't know for sure, but that's the right, I think that's an important question to bring to the text. Here's something that uh, uh, an Old Testament scholar named Smicha Bear, B-A-E-R, he's pointed out about this particular story that is worth paying attention to. What he's observed is that when in Genesis 7, uh, verse 16, we read this language of God shutting Noah in the ark. The image is God shuts the door. And uh, then what you read is when the flood is over, it's Noah who opens the door. And so what he's pointed out is it's as though God closes the door to his world and allows Noah to open the door to a new world. Now, is that far-fetched? I don't know. I'll let you, th- I'm, I, I'm just passing along. But if you've noticed, uh, the story itself seems to treat this new world different than the last world, right? In the first world, humans weren't supposed to eat meat. We were vegetarians, uh, but in the new world, one of the first things you read is, Noah, you may eat the meat. It's almost like we went from being co-tenants uh, with God and caring for the creation to somehow now man is functioning as landlord. In the first world, uh, God puts the Garden of Eden, right? God creates the Garden of Eden. In this one, who plants the vineyard? Noah plants the vineyard. In the first world, God says the tree is cursed. Don't eat off the tree. In this world, we have Noah eating off the cursed tree of his own hands, which gets him drunk. So he's more drinking off the cursed tree. He gets drunk. The first story ends with Adam naked. This story ends with Noah naked. The first story, after, after, uh, after Adam is discovered, he's naked and And God presents a series of curses to Adam. The same is true to Cain. God gives Cain a series of curses. In this story, who's giving the curses? We're jumping ahead, but who gives the curses? It's Noah giving the curses. Here's how, uh, here's the language of Rabbi Foreman. This I find jarring. I've been thinking a lot about this and would love to think with you about it. God promised never again to destroy the new world. Why? Maybe it's because he had given 
the key, over the keys to us. It's our world now. Chillingly, God promised that he would never ruin the world, but he never promised that we wouldn't. It's our world now. Whether we keep it or ruin it is up to us. And that's where we'll pick up the story next week. How will Noah, the new Adam, do in this new garden? What does this story teach us about the character and the heart of God and how God wants to partner with humanity? Um, but one last thought as an invitation. Um, what do we do with this? The, the first Christians would go back again and again to the story of Noah to talk about, of all things, baptism. In fact, uh, the language of Jesus' baptism, uh, you read that the heavens were ripped open. The last time the heavens are ripped open, it's a flood. But when the heavens are ripped open in Jesus' baptism, the dove comes down. It's how the flood ends. There's no flood. And all we hear is the voice of God. This is my son. I'm well pleased with him. I love him. Listen to him. They pointed to baptism as, like, this is somehow in the story, somehow in the flood story, we are to understand something about our baptism. Something about the flood story actually to the first Christians was not meant to just jar us on what kind of God is this, but actually to show that somehow in this all, our God is a God of mercy. Well, God destroyed all the people. But if you read the story carefully, people had already destroyed each other, right? Read the story. We're filled with violence. We're, come, we're at each other's necks. We're like, if you're Noah trying to live a righteous life in that generation, how's it going to go for you? The, the world was already coming unglued. The flood, they point to, was actually an act of God's mercy. Now, at a macro level, I'm sure that raises all kinds of questions. What do we do with that? Let's, we'll wrestle with that next week. But at a micro level, at a personal level, I'm, my hunch is we know exactly what that looks like. You know what it looks like to have a flood in your life. A flood you didn't ask for, but a flood on the back end you realize, I absolutely needed that flood. I look at my own life and think about those moments where I can, if I, if I uh, go back to those moments and if a flood didn't happen and I stayed on the course that my life was on, I don't know where I would be today. But somehow, as an act of mercy, God saw my life coming unraveled. The creation that I had created was coming unglued. And God, in an act of mercy, allowed a flood. Uh, the, a flood is a, a way to cleanse some of you have experienced floods and what you've discovered is uh, again and again, God meets us in those moments and reminds us that we, can, that we can keep going. You were created for goodness. You were created for beauty. You were created for love. Um, sometimes in our life, uh, what we, we find is we have a really great capacity to make a mess of it. Uh, we screwed up, uh, as you said. I'm not pointing at you as in you screwed up, but as... <laughs> um, and what they discovered in baptism uh, is that the word baptism means immersion. Uh, it, it means to immerse. Uh, in Hebrew, it's mikvah, um, but you immerse. And what the first Christians, when they would connect it to the story of Noah um, because they discovered that this idea of baptism was both gruesome and beautiful. Here's the gruesome part. Here's what many of us need. We have an old nature 
things we don't like about ourselves, things that people don't like about us, things that we, things that we have broken, the brokenness we carry, we take that old person and we allow our God to hold that person down until it stops kicking and screaming and you drown it. That's gruesome. Here's the beautiful part. But then our God lifts us back up and recreates us, a new creation. Some of us, we have uh, marriages that like, at some level, we need to trust that our God could hold it down so that he can bring it back up. Some of us have relationships and it's just not working. It's, we're not connecting. We're hurting each other. Why are we hurting each other? Why, do you, why would you say that about me? And we need to trust our God to lower it so that he can pull us back up. A new creation. Um, some of us have found ourselves with habits and those habits have become um, well, habitual, and those uh, habitual those habits now are, are leading to addictions, and we're finding ourselves stuck. And we need to trust our God enough to say, God, I, I, as hard as it is to ask, Lord, I need a flood in my life so that you can make me back new. What the first Christians recognized is that if you look in the story closely, you find a God who's on every page of every moment of this story. We'll pick the story up next week. I want you to see this. Um, but I hope what you discover is that our God gives, a, our God is a God of fresh starts and can give fresh starts. If you're struggling to find grace, um, I hope you hear from the scriptures this morning that God loves you and you deserve a, a fresh start. You deserve a second chance. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Ah, oh, Lord, we Uh, as you said over Jesus in his baptism, uh, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Uh, Lord, I just pray that every single one of us, Lord, this morning um, would be able to hear you say over us, you are my child, I'm so proud of you. Uh, Lord, for those of us who we look ourselves in the mirror and we don't see anything worth being proud of, Lord, this morning we pray that you would remind us that we are your children you love us and that you're proud of us. Uh, Lord, would you heal our hearts? Would you heal our community? Would you heal our nation? Would you heal our world? Uh, and then, Lord, would you use your church to be the hands and feet of your son, Jesus, on our world? Lord, we pray this in your name. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.